Hello, and welcome back to The Indie, a podcast from the Santa Barbara Independent, giving you what's happening in Santa Barbara. I'm Molly McEnany, the host of The Indie, and I'm here this week with Matt Ketman, senior editor at The Independent, discussing the eight fresh faces of environmental action here in Santa Barbara. Earth Day is coming up this Thursday, April 22nd, which in part is a reminder of Santa Barbara's eco-history as the founding of Earth Day in 1970 has ties to the oil spill of 1969. So in paying homage to the environmental activism that sparked a movement then, The Independent is featuring some new activists coming into the spotlight. So Matt, who are some of the key figures in environmental research right now? Well, we have a number of stories this week uh, about lots of these these newer faces. And, and um, one of them is, is Jay Reddy, who's the new head of the Santa Cruz Island Reserve, which is a, a UCSB position. Uh, and it covers uh, the entire island of, of Santa Cruz, where um, many researchers go out and, and, you know, study everything from entomology to geology to they do art classes out there and everything. And so the reserve is one of 41 reserves that are managed by the UC system. They tally more than 750,000 acres of land, which makes it apparently the largest research reserve system in the world. Uh, Santa Cruz Island, even though it's remote and uh, can only accommodate overnight usage, uh, is actually one of the busier research stations out there. So Jay's job is kind of organizing uh, all of these researchers. You know, there's people apply to go do research out there and he has to kind of vet their applications. He has to make sure their permits are in order. And then he has to kind of organize uh, the flow out there. They have a they have a field station that can accommodate, you know, in normal times, 30 to 40 people at a time. Obviously, with COVID, it's it's really, you know, constrained right now. Um, But he's kind of juggling all of that. You know, the last guy that was out there um, Lindell Lauren, he's actually still living out there. He's retired now, but he's been out there for 55 years. So, uh, in a lot of ways, this is kind of a lifetime position, uh, as long as you, you know, keep everything moving in the right direction, I presume. Um, so Jay, you know, is uh, actually from Paso Robles originally visited Santa Cruz Island during a summer field class out there and fell in love. And so went on to study, uh, anthropology, uh, and did 15 field seasons in, in like super remote parts of East Africa, working on, you know, early hominid species and stuff like that. Um, and uh, then went on to teach at UC Santa Cruz, uh, got his master's and PhD from Rutgers, and eventually saw this job posted. And it's kind of a, you know, a dream job for him. And he was really uh, uniquely well suited for it. So uh, Jay's an important guy, and we're going to probably see a lot of them in the, in the years to come. Fundraising is a big thing for that role too. So we talked with Jay and uh, he's really facilitating a ton of the research out there. Uh, additionally, while they mostly just facilitate research, he also had spearheaded a project to put uh, climate change, essentially weather stations at very remote parts of the island. And it's becoming kind of a centerpiece of what could become a regional climate data gathering system that's fully open access uh, to anyone around the world. And so he's really proud of that too. So there's some proactive work that they do out there as well. And UCSB being one of the largest research institutions is surely putting in some work in the environmental area. So Matt, you also interviewed a Liz Carlisle who is involved in sustainable agriculture advocacy. Could you tell me a bit about her? Yeah. So Liz is a, a kind of a fascinating story. She uh, grew up in Missoula, Montana, uh, listening to stories of her grandmother talk about growing up in the Dust Bowl. And so she fell in love with this idea of an agrarian lifestyle and, and, and the, you know, these romantic stories, but it was also a tragic story, right? I mean, the Dust Bowl decimated communities and 
so she kind of started to wonder about the roots of that. Meanwhile, went to Harvard, studied like folklore and mythology, and then became a country singer and traveled the country going to all of these rural places. And she kept hearing the same story that was echoed in her grandmother's stories, where these, these communities had these long held traditions of, um, you know, a sustainable form of farming that were all kind of decimated by essentially federal policy of the 1970s that basically forced uh, farmers to go big or go home essentially and, um, you know, encouraged and paid for them to shift from, you know, more dynamic farming systems to uh, monoculture that was dependent upon, you know, chemical herbicides and pesticides and that sort of thing, um, all for the, for the sake of basically uh, using food as a weapon during the Cold War, which is, is kind of crazy. Meanwhile, you had these uh, corporations like Ford and Sears that were uh, somehow involved in uh, encouraging federal economic policy to uh, make these agricultural rules that essentially eliminated jobs in rural communities, thereby forcing more people into urban settings where these corporations could use them as low-wage workers on their assembly lines. So a fairly um, you know, complex and convoluted uh, series of schemes there. Anyway, Liz started to learn about all this. And so she uh, wound up um, going back to school uh, to study that. And she also worked for Senator John Tester in Montana, who was, um, you know, a full farmer, flat top. I guess he's missing a finger on one of his hands or something like that. Uh, but she was encouraged by his promotion of organic farming and renewable energy as, as a way forward for uh, the state of Montana, which had always been about extractive agriculture, uh, and fossil fuels. And so she started working for him and, and learned more of these stories and eventually went back to school at UC Berkeley to um, really dive in. And she wrote a couple of books, worked for Stanford for a while. And now she's down here at UCSB, um, you know, focusing on that and, and spreading, you know, the, the word about, you know, food system sustainability to, you know, undergrads and uh, also has another book coming out as well. So. So staying on land, but segueing to the urban, who's been involved in reshaping the landscape of urban communities to help benefit the local wildlife? Yeah, so uh, this woman is not exactly local, but her, her regional work is going to be seen by all of us who drive anywhere south of here towards Los Angeles, um, a woman named Laurel Series, and she's uh, kind of considered like the urban carnivores expert in the world right now. And so um, many of us up here, you know, know about mountain lions and how they kind of come into communities and that can kind of freak people out. Well, down in the Santa Monica mountains, uh, you know, there's a whole population of mountain lions that's essentially pinned in between the Pacific Ocean uh, in Malibu there. And then uh, the 101 freeway, as it cuts through essentially the uh, Conejo Valley, you know, Thousand Oaks, uh, Westlake, Agora area. And so there's been this push and it's, it's moving forward. They're raising millions and millions of dollars to build this wildlife crossing over 101, right down there in Agora, essentially, right near Calabasas. And Laurel is one of the people that um, has been, you know, doing the science to support uh, this sort of thing. It shows that if you connect uh, the Santa Monica Mountains area to these other parts across the freeway, that there is plenty of connectivity there all the way up to um, even the Los Padres National Forest up here. So it would allow these these mountain lions that are essentially isolated and becoming kind of a genetic problem, it'll allow them to spread and, and kind of and not reach their demise due to uh, being constrained by development, essentially. So if we can now discuss a little bit about the offshore wind projects locally, who's been a key player in developing policy for those projects? So yeah, there's, you know, there's this idea that 
kind of a broad idea that renewable energy and in the form of, you know, offshore wind projects and other things is this kind of cure-all for the world's ills when it comes to energy. And the reality is that any kind of project may also have some negative implications. So um, uh, Kristen Hislop at the Environmental Defense Center, which has long been a steward of all things environmental in Santa Barbara County and beyond, um, she's working on uh, offshore wind policy. So she's looking at establishing, you know, rules and guidelines uh, early in the process so that when the, by the time these offshore wind projects come forward uh, as actual proposals, that there will be some rules in place and guidelines in place that ensure they're not detrimental to other parts of our environment. And so, um, you know, a lot of times alternative energy projects can kind of just get a free pass because they seem like the groovy thing to do. But in reality, there's other things to worry about. And, and Kristen's on the front lines of making sure we don't, um, you know, cause one problem uh, by solving another. So now a bit about Christopher Raglan, who was a big part of the Black Lives Matter movement here, but has been developing this Sea League. So what is that all about? Uh, yeah, Christopher Raglan was a big part of the Black Lives Matter movement here in Santa Barbara, uh, you know, last summer when that was really fired up. Uh, he led a, a BLM paddle out at Ledbetter Beach, which drew hundreds and hundreds of supporters out there. Um, was a really cool thing. And now he's taking that energy and he's formed something called the Sea League, which is uh, an attempt to bring, uh, you know, black kids uh, into the ocean and get them more familiar uh, with the ocean. I mean, Christopher Raglan's a black man. He grew up going to the ocean. He, he feels very blessed that one of his relatives would take him there regularly. Um, you know, the African-American culture in uh, California and other parts of the United States has kind of been cut out of, of uh, ocean activities and have been, you know, kind of discouraged from taking part and are just not comfortable there um, for, you know, a variety of long built-in cultural reasons. Um, and Chris sees his love of the ocean as something that kept him out of jail and out of like going down the wrong path, which is what happened to so many other males of his family. So he's building this organization. Uh, it's really in the early stages that he's really hoping to bring kids of, of color uh, to the beach. It was fairly simple concept, but uh, one that really could change a lot of lives. And he's he's working really hard on that right now. So I know we've done some in-depth discussion on five of the individuals being featured this week, but the final three, can you give a brief rundown on the last few individuals being featured? Yeah, the last few, I mean, this, you know, by no means is this a comprehensive list of all the important people doing environmental work in Santa Barbara County today. But we think, you know, our list of eight is a, a nice, solid uh, swath of the community, and we hope it's representative of a number of different aspects of environmental work in, in Santa Barbara. Um, the last three we have on there, we have Meredith Hendricks, who is uh, the new director of the Land Trust uh, for Santa Barbara County, which is kind of the primary means of conserving land in, in Santa Barbara, uh, land that would other, otherwise be developed. Uh, the Land Trust goes in and kind of, you know, puts conservation easements on it, sometimes buys it outright and turns it into public access. That sort of thing. So we're going to hear her story. We have a, a story about Summer Gray, who's also a UCSB professor who's working on a lot of the shoreline stability and debris flow issues, which is obviously a huge deal here. She sees the value uh, beyond data, but in the telling of stories and of allowing uh, students to understand the, the stories and how that you know leads to more environmental understanding. The last one on our list, and certainly not least, is, is Teresa Romero. She's a Shumash woman who works for the Shumash tribe in their environmental office working on restoration projects and other sorts of positive projects in, in the San Inez Valley. 
Well, thank you so much, Matt, for speaking with me on the Behind the Cover Story for Earth Day this week. It is a wonderful collaboration by many of the writers here at The Independent. So in other environmental-related news, I'm here with Kate Spaulding and Elizabeth Bisno, student activists, discussing their independent piece on the 2021 LA climate strike. Hello, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. So I hear that this piece is in the form of a dialogue. What's that about and how does it function differently than, say, a typical news article? By making it a dialogue, we can emphasize that it was really a we effort Um, But that being said, it was Kate who started organizing the climate strike with Project 9, which is an organization dedicated to getting young people involved in political and social action and activism. And then she told me about it and we agreed that I would help her organize it. And I couldn't have a better teammate in working on something like this. And so by having the article be a dialogue, I think that allows for more elaboration on what our thought process was behind the strike. I agree. So Kate and Elizabeth, you both collaborated in the planning of the LA climate strike for 2021, which is being held next Friday, the 23rd at noon at LA City Hall. Now, this is a classic case of kids skipping school in the name of climate activism. But what's your personal story regarding climate activism? And how did you both kind of influence each other in getting involved? I really think that you don't really have to be special to get involved in climate activism and you can just be sort of like an everyday quote unquote normal person and I thought before I started doing this that I had to be super well versed in environmental policy and activism and outreach but I have learned that you really don't and everybody can make an impact on the world and especially on their community and I really appreciate and look up to everybody who has been starting these movements within their own communities because I feel like it's the group effort and the effort of so many individuals that is making change. And I think going off of what Kate is saying about you can just be an ordinary person, it's been very simple and fundamental concerns that have led me to have the the confidence to organize this strike. And it's been a lifetime of love animals, of being fascinated with wildlife, and of being friends with Kate, who is increasingly aware of environmental problems and possible solutions. And it's just those simple things that, that tell me that something is wrong and that we need to fix it, and that that young people should feel totally confident in doing something like this. Now, Kate, you actually took a whole semester off to travel to Latin America. What did you see there? And did this influence you at all in getting involved in the 2021 LA climate strike? Yes, definitely. Um, While I was abroad in Ecuador, I was able to meet so many amazing and influential people and activists who were changing their communities and speaking their voice. And it really made me aware of the fact that everybody can overcome any obstacles that they're facing if they try hard enough and really work hard enough with their communities. And it's really important to me to at least try and make a difference and meeting such inspiring people who had lived different lives than I have and had such different perspectives really inspired me. And I am so grateful to meet them because we had some interesting conversations. And so I'm always grateful for that. 
Well, thank you so much, Kate Spaulding and Elizabeth Bisno for sharing the inspiration behind their piece discussing the 2021 LA climate strike. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So now in other news this week, I'm here with Tyler Hayden, senior editor of The Independent, discussing his recent story about the police shooting of Chris Ruiz three weeks ago up in Lompoc. So Tyler, what's the situation regarding the response from the Lompoc Police Department right now? Yeah, the Ruiz family is pretty desperate for some kind of follow-up response from the Lompoc Police Department. They've released very little information about what happened uh, when they approached Chris Ruiz that night. Uh, It was about 8 p.m. on the 28th. There was a, a call, a 911 call of a person in the area with a gun. Um, the police approached Chris uh, because I guess he matched the description somewhat. Um, and we don't know what happened after that. If, there were, if they tried to take uh, Chris into custody and he resisted or what, what the nature of the confrontation was. But we know that the end result was Chris was shot and killed. Um, the, the attorney for the family uh, says that no gun was ever recovered, that, that Chris was never armed. You know, he has stressed that Chris never had a criminal record, uh, has no, you know, violent tendencies. Um, and it's, it's just a, it's a big tragic mystery uh, about what happened. Um, and so the attorney for the Ruiz family is asking that an outside agency uh, investigate what happened because he is arguing if the sheriff's office or the district attorney's office takes the lead uh, in investigating this, they won't be able to be impartial uh, because they're all part of the same local law enforcement apparatus that tends to protect itself. So how is this case similar to other recent fatal shootings by Santa Barbara law enforcement? One common thread is that the attorney representing uh, Ruiz family, he represented the family of Brian Carreño, who was shot and killed by sheriff's deputies uh, a few years ago here in the city of Santa Barbara. And there, there are similarities in that the families in both cases argued that the response by law enforcement officials was, uh, was too swift and too violent, um, and that there were other means of de-escalating or handling the situation. In the, in the Brian Carreño case, the shooting was deemed justified by our district attorney and the sheriff's office. Um, but, but recently we learned that uh, a wrongful death lawsuit that was filed by the family um, recently settled for $850,000. So even though the sheriff's office never admitted any fault in the killing, the county felt it was a safe and smart move to pay the family $850,000 to avoid a trial or continued litigation, but it was best to just make things go away. So it seems as though these lawsuits end up being dealt with under the table by the sheriff's department. Now, how often does that actually happen? It's, it's happened uh, a handful of times in recent years. I mean, the interesting thing about these types of cases is they're filed in civil court, so it's not, it's not a criminal case. And because they're handled um, through mediation and between the county's attorneys and the family's private attorneys, um, and a lot of those negotiations and, and mediations, if, if not all of them, are confidential, they're sealed. So we really can only learn about the facts of these cases through public records acts, uh, requests, and interviews with people. But yeah, the cases never really see the light of day. They never get to court. The public never gets to hear either side really. Um, I mean, we oftentimes hear the law enforcement side right after uh, these incidents, they put out a, a statement saying we're investigating it. And then soon after, 
uh, almost always they say, you know, we investigated and we found no fault with any of the officers. And it's only later, um, after longer civil litigation, do we find out that um, the county felt there was something wrong enough with what happened that to protect themselves uh, and our law enforcement officers, they pay large sums of money, as I said, to make these cases go away. And in the case of the sheriff's office in Santa Barbara County, uh, if you tally it up, it, it's more than $9 million in the last uh, decade. So we're looking at almost a million a year in payouts that uh, the county certainly won't advertise, but we feel it's important to bring attention to. I completely agree. And the country is actively following cases like these, most prominently the Derek Chauvin trial, the former police officer who has now been found guilty for the murder of George Floyd. Well, thank you so much, Tyler, for speaking with me about your recent story on the police shooting of Chris Ruiz, as well as the details surrounding recent incidents of police brutality and the frequent use of under the table negotiations to keep claims out of the courts. Thank you. Thank you again to Matt Ketman, Kate Spaulding, and Elizabeth Bisno for speaking with me about their pieces on environmental action, perfect for celebrating Earth Day this coming Thursday, both of which can be found at www.independent.com. I'm Molly McEnany, the host of The Indie. Tune in next week for another episode.